Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Mr. Woodward, the president. Hi, Bob. President Trump, how are you? For his new book, Rage, Bob Woodward interviewed President Trump 18 times. Tell me more. Tonight, in his only interview... You'll hear the reporter of Watergate fame and Mr. Trump recorded and on the record about North Korea, the Black Lives Matter movement, and coronavirus. I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. This is where the Tijuana River crosses the border into the United States. This cement structure was built to contain flooding from rainfall. But this isn't just rainwater. It's a toxic mix of raw sewage from neighboring Tijuana, draining into Southern California on lower ground, eventually emptying into the Pacific Ocean. So effectively, it's like a toilet flushing straight into this river valley. You may think you know Joaquin Phoenix from the parts he's played. Dark, complicated, sometimes disturbed characters like the deranged clown in Joker. That's not what we found at all. One person we talked to who knows you says that uh, you're a wonderful actor and a terrible movie star. Who is this person? I'm not going to say. Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. 
Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Tonight, new reporting from The Washington Post's Bob Woodward says that President Trump was bluntly warned in January about the threat of coronavirus, but chose to downplay the danger in public. Woodward's new book, Rage, is his latest work in a 50-year career investigating American presidents. His first investigation, reported with Carl Bernstein, led to the resignation of Richard Nixon. For Rage, Mr. Trump agreed to 18 recorded interviews, many, which you're about to hear, started with the words of the White House operator, Mr. Woodward, the president. Mr. Trump called sometimes late at night to talk about Black Lives Matter, the threat of nuclear war, and about the dire warning he received during an intelligence briefing this past January. On January 28th, of this year before the virus was on anyone's radar, the National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien told the president, this virus will be the biggest national security threat you face in your presidency. What was the president's reaction? His, His head popped up and he asked questions. President Trump's questions in the January 28th meeting exposed a difference of opinion. Beth Sanner from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence said the virus might be no worse than SARS in 2003 when there were only eight known infections in the U.S. But Woodward says Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger, who had been a reporter in China, told Mr. Trump his unofficial Chinese contacts had raised a grave warning. Pottinger said his contacts in China told him this is going to be like the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that killed 675,000 people in this country. It was a stunning moment in the Trump presidency and I think in American history because he then went on to publicly dismiss the virus and he knew that this was a pandemic coming. And this is January 28th. Yes. The next day, the White House announced a coronavirus task force. This was Mr. Trump January 30th, two days after the warning. We think we have it very well under control. Uh, We have very little problem in this country at this moment, five. And uh, those people are all recuperating successfully. But we're working very closely with China and other countries, and we think it's going to have a very good ending for us. So uh, that I can uh, assure you. Chinese officials were concealing what they knew about COVID-19. Foreign nationals. On January 31st, the president restricted travel from China. The next week, in a phone call, Mr. Trump told Woodward what he'd been learning about the virus. This was February 7th. It goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, It's also more deadly than your 
you know, your, even your strenuous flus. This is deadly stuff. Three weeks after that call, the president said this to the public. It's a little like the regular flu that we have flu shots for, and we'll essentially have a flu shot for this in a fairly quick manner. Yeah, go ahead. In that February 7th interview, it's clear that the president knows what the stakes are, but he's not sharing that with the public at that time. Yes, this is the tragedy. A president of the United States has a duty to warn. The public will understand that, but if they get the feeling that they're not getting the truth, then you're going down the path of deceit and cover-up. Did the president ever disclose to you why he wasn't telling the public what the stakes were with the coronavirus? So in March, I asked exactly that question, you know, what's going on? And the president said... I wanted to uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, I... because I don't want to create a panic. I think he did not understand the American public. And he said, well, I don't want to create a panic. We know from history, when the public is told the truth, they organize, we have a problem. Uh, we're going to step up. And Trump thought, oh, well, they'll panic when there's a crisis, when uh, the president particularly knows something, it's time to tell the public in some form. He failed. You write in the book that the president's handling of the virus reflects his instincts, habits, and style. What are those? Denial. Uh, making up his own facts. At age 77, Bob Woodward has fact-checked nine presidents. Rage is his 20th book. It's published by Simon & Schuster, part of Viacom CBS. The title Rage comes from him. He said he brings out rage in people, and he doesn't know whether that's a positive or a negative or good thing or a bad thing and also it describes a condition in the country now there's a lot of rage out there his interviews for rage started in the oval office then continued for months in phone calls many out of the blue from mr trump yes i mean you have an audio tape of this where they come on mr woodward the president President Hi. Trump, how are you? How are you? I'm turning my recorder on here as I always do. Yeah. Just so it I started in December 2019 before the virus was on anyone's radar, so we, we were talking a lot about North Korea. In Mr. Trump's first year, North Korea tested its first intercontinental missile. Woodward says the president gave Defense Secretary James Mattis authority to shoot down any North Korean missile aimed at the U.S. North Korea dominated their earliest interviews. I think the public did not realize, and Trump told me repeatedly, he said, you don't know how close we were to war. Instead, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un offered to meet. They did, three times. 
Woodward has more than two dozen letters exchanged in their diplomatic courtship. Kim says to Trump, our meetings, our relationship is out of a fantasy film. He says there is a magical force uh, between us. Even now, I cannot forget that moment of history when I firmly held your excellency's hand as the whole world watched. Did the CIA have a look at Kim's letters? Yes. And what did they make of them? Uh, they never figured out who was writing them, uh, but the analysts concluded that they're masterpieces because they're, they are appealing to Trump's sense of grandiosity. Woodward's interviews took a sharp turn May 25th after George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police officers. The Black Lives Matter movement reignited. Do you think there is systematic or institutional racism in this country? Well, I think there is everywhere. I think probably less here than most places or less here than many places. Okay, but is it here in a way that it has an impact on people's lives? I think it is, and it's unfortunate, but I think it is. Woodward asked Mr. Trump if a privileged life left him out of touch. And uh, do you have any sense that that privilege has isolated and put you in a cave to a certain extent? Has it put me and I think lots of white privileged people in a cave and that we have to work our way out of it to understand uh, the anger and the pain particularly black people feel in this country. Do you no, you, you really drank the Kool-Aid, didn't you? you? Listen to you. Wow. No, I don't feel that at all. He was ridiculing me for reflecting what the whole movement after George Floyd is. By the time of their final interviews in August, Mr. Trump had become the leader of the one nation suffering the most from the virus. The president came to this conclusion. You and Nothing I... more could have been done. Nothing more could have been done. Nothing more could have been done. Does he remember what he told me back in February about it's more deadly than the flu? I mean, it almost took my breath away that there was such certainty when he was absolutely wrong about the issue that defines the position of this country right now. Hello? Yes, thank you. This past week, the Washington Post published Woodward's calls with the president and Woodward was criticized for not reporting back in February what Mr. Trump had said about the virus being deadly. Woodward says he didn't know at the time whether Mr. Trump was right. In our interview, we asked about another controversy contained in the last line of the book. It might disappoint some of your fans that you reach an editorial conclusion at the end of this book something that reporters are not supposed to do. Yes. I say the president is the wrong man for the job. But 
you're known as the reporter who doesn't put his thumb on the scale. And yet, at the end of this book, you do just that. It's a conclusion based on evidence, overwhelming evidence, that he could not rise to the occasion with the virus and tell the truth. And one of the things that President Trump told me in the presidency, there's always dynamite behind the door. The real dynamite is President Trump. He is the dynamite. The president's final call came too late. He asked Woodward to include the August peace agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, but rage was already off to the press. Woodward took the opportunity to level with the president. And I said, it's a tough book. There are going to be things that you are not going to like, judgments that I made. And uh, he, at the end, said, well, I didn't get you on this book. Maybe, maybe I'll get you on the next one. But it looks like I don't have it on this book, but we'll get you sometime <laughs> later. I it, it's tough, sir. Thank you very much. And after you told the president that it was, in your words, a tough book, what did he do? An hour and a half later, uh, he tweeted out that the Bob Woodward book is going to be fake. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The term crisis on the border typically refers to immigration issues or drugs being smuggled into the country. But it has one more meaning as we discovered when we traveled to the border in early February. Tens of millions of gallons of raw sewage that spill every year into the Tijuana River on the Mexican side and flow across the border right into Southern California, polluting the land, air, and sea. Mexico and the United States each thinks the other side should be doing more to clean it up with no effective solution found on either side of the border for decades. This is where the Tijuana River crosses the border into the United States. This cement structure was built to contain flooding from rainfall. But this isn't just rainwater. It's a toxic mix of raw sewage from neighboring Tijuana, draining into Southern California on lower ground eventually emptying into the Pacific Ocean. So effectively, it's like a toilet flushing straight into this river valley. Border Patrol agent Amber Craig took us on a tour of the sewage infiltration, showing us that what doesn't flush out to sea washes up on land. Mountains of plastic bottles, furniture, and tires. And this is a, a concern for us, too, not just because it's debris and waste, but because the, the mosquitoes love to nest in it. So It's a health concern, an eyesore, and it's hindering the Border Patrol's main mission. She took us to see President Trump's newly erected wall along the border. Just this six-mile stretch cost an estimated $50 million. 
What we found is that under the wall, there's a network of basins and tunnels built 30 years ago to try to capture the sewage from Tijuana. The red dot is me next to Agent Amber Craig inside one of those concrete sewage collection basins. It's connected on either end to tunnels from Mexico to California that were constructed right under the wall. So you think of the smugglers and the migrants building tunnels to go under the wall. But the U.S. government built this tunnel that goes under the wall. Yes, we built this so that the water would flow freely into the United States. It has to flow freely because four decades ago, the U.S. signed an agreement with Mexico not to cause backup flooding at this area of the border. These metal grates at the ends of the tunnel let the water in while keeping the rubbish out. It typically works fine during dry weather, but not when it storms. The amount of water that comes through here comes through like a torrent. It, it is very, very dangerous. It is a raging river when with it the, rains. With the tires and the barrels and everything. Full of debris and garbage, that's correct. It's very dangerous. The debris and garbage can hurtle down here with such force that Border Patrol agents have to open the grates to prevent the system from clogging. That means trash flows into California unobstructed. It's also an opening for migrants. The purpose of the wall is being totally defeated by this obligation of yours to lift the grates. You, well, yep, it does make it a little more challenging to have to have that open. Of course, we don't want to have it open. If they go through that tunnel, they're in the United States. If the grates have to be opened, then we have to have a personnel, an agent on the other side, keeping so an eye on the other side. So as they come out, that's correct. How do the smugglers know that the grates are lifted? They watch. They so, watch? Sure. There's smugglers watching us probably right now. Migrants are routinely caught risking their lives crossing in the sewage. Some need to be rescued and decontaminated. Let me read you a list that we found of stuff that is in this water. Fecal coliforms, drug-resistant bacteria, benzene, cadmium, mercury, hexavalent chromium, medical waste, and DDT which has been banned for years in the United States. Yes, ma'am. I hear that sometimes the water turns funny colors. It does. We've had bright, bright purple, a bright pink, neon green, dark black. So the migrants are going into this. Yes, ma'am. And the patrol agents are going into this. And mm -hmm. are they getting sick? Agents have reported various health injuries. Rashes are very common. Stomach issues. We've had one agent who had a flesh-eating bacteria and he almost lost his arm. How angry are you and the other agents? We're frustrated, very frustrated. Agents know our job is dangerous. We, we've signed up for a job where we could be shot at, where we could die in a car accident, and we accept that. Nobody thought that they were gonna come here and be exposed to this to the sewage and the chemicals and the smell. Congress just allocated $300 million to address the sewage issue all along the border, a fraction of what's needed, especially here because of the rapidly growing population of Tijuana. 
It, it is a difficult situation. We're having to deal with another country. And the city of Tijuana is just a huge city. It's overpopulated. Their infrastructure isn't, isn't prepared to handle this kind of flow. So it just comes right over the border. The local Mexican sewage authority invited us to one of the main treatment pumps in Tijuana. It often breaks down due to mechanical failures. So workers have to wade underground in black sludge to repair the buckling facility. While we were there, one worker got so overwhelmed by toxic fumes, he required medical attention. According to the Mexican authority, the last line of defense keeping the sewage out of the U.S. here is a small crew of sanitation workers who unclog drains by hand along the border. We found one of them, a man named Abel, clearing trash with a rake. Some of the wastewater that does get collected is pumped into these giant pools six miles south of the border where the sewage is supposed to be treated and discharged through this massive pipe as clean water into the ocean. But the facility hasn't worked for years. So what you're looking at is untreated sewage emptying directly into the Pacific. We stood by the torrent with Faye Crevachet an environmentalist with Wild Coast, a watchdog group of concerned citizens from both sides of the border. How much sewage are we talking about? Yeah, the local authorities say that it's 25 million gallons a day. We think it's 40 million gallons. And it's just gushing, gushing, gushing out. That's what we have here. Making matters worse, entire shanty towns have popped up in Tijuana's canyons along the border. Many of these makeshift shacks were thrown up by people who moved here for jobs at factories created by the North American Free Trade Agreement. These factories are dumping their chemicals. Sure, and we have no laws, but there is no enforcement. control. So why spend money? The problem is this: these factories come here because it's cheap. They're going to pay the workers $8 a day. And this is the result. This is where the workers live. These houses have no services, no electricity. No plumbing. No plumbing, nothing. This stream, this entire stream is just raw sewage. Sewage. When it rains, what happens to this stream? It grows. They have a whole river. You see all the lying garbage all around it? Yeah. That... Well, it takes it with. We saw tires everywhere, a lot of them from California that were sold to Mexican car owners secondhand. When the tires wear out, many are used to prop up homes on the hillside or just get dumped and then get swept by the sewage right back to Southern California. We wondered where all the untreated sewage that emptied into the ocean goes. Well, we learned that it can flow right by a U.S. military training base. Hard to believe, but the Navy SEALs are training right in the path of the sludge. Let me ask the SEALs, how many of you uh, have gone swimming in that? All of, All of us. us. All of you. Retired Naval officer Mark Did West and four retired SEALs, Alex Lopez, Kyle Bucket, Bill Lyman, and Steve Viola, 
Told us how the sewage impacts those training here. It wreaks havoc on your system. Uh, stomach aches, throwing up, I mean, coming out both ends, uh, fever, and you just have to suck it up and keep going. We've had classes of, you know, 38 to 42 uh, guys uh, contract it during their training cycle, and it's a very, it's a big challenge for us to deal with that. I contracted cellulitis, um, which is a bacterial, like, staph infection. It just took off, and it started eating, you know, flesh on both my legs. They say that the most vulnerable are seal buds, those trying out to be seals, especially during Hell Week. Five and a half days immersed in the ocean, testing their endurance. Have you heard that during Hell Week, the buds now take prophylactic antibiotics? Yes, I have heard that. You were a trainer. Do you ever say, these kids can't go on this today. I can smell it. I can see it. Yeah. You Absolutely. Do. Yeah, we have. We have. And then we have to transition to the bay or to a pool. There's no waves in the bay and there's right. no waves in the pool. Are you seeing any reason to, for us to worry about your readiness? I think, I think that our readiness is being impacted. And, and, you know, it is been, being impacted. Yeah, it is. The SEALs say the Navy, aware of the sewage issue, is monitoring the water quality. So we found it odd that it is spending a billion dollars to expand the SEALs training base much closer to the source of the pollution. We had outgrown the capacity of the buildings that we had, so that's why we moved down there. But were they taking the pollution into account? No. The Navy did do an environmental impact study. Yes. The Navy's main focus was to see how much we were going to impact the environment. It wasn't focused on what the environment was going to impact on the Navy SEAL community. The Navy turned down our request for an interview, but recently told Congress in this report that the runoff is a concern, yet its impact has been infrequent and short-term concluding that it is easily mitigated. Serge Dedina, mayor of Imperial Beach, the city on the south edge of the new base, doesn't buy it. They've ignored the health and safety of their own national security staff, and that's absolutely unacceptable. Did you ever get any health problems from the water? Yes, I have a tube in my ear because I had so many ear infections. My kids have gotten sick, our lifeguards have gotten sick, Pretty much every one of our council members have gotten sick. So it's, it's devastated our city. In more ways than one, Imperial Beach is a surfing town, but its beaches are closed a third of the year or more due to the toxic sludge. I've got to spend my time hammering people in power to make sure they understand that dumping toxic waste on Navy SEALs and Border Patrol agents is a bad idea and getting them to acknowledge that it's actually happening. If the Navy weighed in, do you think things would begin to happen? I think if the Navy brass weighed in, this would be fixed tomorrow. Meanwhile, the Niagara of sewage keeps gushing, the grates keep opening, and Abel keeps at it with his rake. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. 
but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. If all you know about Joaquin Phoenix is the parts he's played, you might think he'd be aloof, maybe even disturbed. During his nearly four decades as an actor, dark, complicated characters have become something of a trademark. We first brought you this story in January, just before Phoenix won his first Oscar for his role as the mentally ill clown turned deranged killer Arthur Fleck in Joker. It's a daring and complex performance that earned Phoenix acclaim and controversy. Phoenix has a reputation for being difficult in interviews, and we weren't sure what to expect when we met with him in Los Angeles. What we found was a shy, wry, welcoming actor who wasn't entirely sure he wanted to talk with us at all. Do you like being interviewed? Because it doesn't seem like, from other interviews I've read, that you like it. It's all right, but it's it's not something. If I had like the choice of like four different activities, I don't think it'd be <laughs> this one. This would not I would be choose. one of them. No. <laughs> um, one person we talked to who knows you says that uh, you're a wonderful actor and a terrible movie star. Who is this person? <laughs> I'm not going to say. Oh please, you. Made <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? It means that you're not interested in the trappings of being a movie star. You don't have an assistant. You, you're not on social media. Well, hold on. And, and you're not in a, living in a mega mansion somewhere and driving, you know, Lamborghinis around. Um, the Lamborghinis in the shop. Uh, okay. uh, <laughs> no. Unlike many actors, Phoenix isn't surrounded by an entourage. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Just his two curious dogs, Soda nice. and Oscar. He leads a relatively quiet life in the Hollywood Hills. Unexceptional, except for the fact he's widely considered one of the most talented actors of his generation. He's played Jesus. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. And Johnny Cash. It takes an emperor to rule an empire. A cunning emperor in Gladiator and a struggling loner in The Master. Tell me why you're not with her if you love her so much. I told her I'd come back and I never went back and now I just, I gotta get back to her. Why don't you go back? I don't know. Why don't you go back? I don't back? know! Close your eyes. Joaquin Phoenix has appeared in more than 30 films. Did I get you? And has already received three Oscar nominations. Yeah. They say success breeds confidence. What's happening out there? But Phoenix is still plagued by self-doubt. Do you get nervous? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. On a set? Yes, petrified. What are you petrified about? I mean, you're, you've been doing this for 30 plus years. Yeah. There's so many things that I want to express. Like when I take on a role um, and I go through the script, I'm just like full of ideas. And so... I guess I'm just nervous that I'm not going to be able to to find the right kind of space to express that. He's been known to get testy when asked about his acting process. We tried anyway. It's difficult to talk about because I don't really understand it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to articulate something for you, but I don't... Isn't it the fact that you don't quite understand it that makes it so compelling? Yes, and it's what makes doing interviews so frustrating, right? Um... Because it is, there's a certain mystery that I love and I appreciate um, and I'm comfortable with. You think you broke it? His characters, however, are often uncomfortable to watch. 
especially his most recent role as Arthur Fleck in Joker. Phoenix transforms from a troubled, lonely clown into a murderer. There are times where I really felt for him, and there were times where I was disappointed and repulsed by his behavior, right? Um, and I, I, I like that. Phoenix spent months talking through the script with his director, Todd Phillips. But the one thing he's loath to do is rehearse with other actors. It just it feels impossible to me. What do you mean impossible? I don't know. It's, um, it just feels so fake. Mm. I mean, the great thing about shooting a movie is shooting multiple takes and you use editing. And so you grab those best moments. So I'd rather discover those moments while we're working um, than in the rehearsal process and then feel like, oh, that was really good what we did. How do we recreate that? Those moments he discovers while filming are often unscripted and unexpected. Like this pivotal scene in Joker just after he commits his first murder. The script simply called for Phoenix to hide his gun in a bathroom. And it felt like the character had moved way past that and that there, there was the, the opportunity to express something else. But I didn't know precisely what that, what that was. Director Todd Phillips played him some cello music that had been composed for the film, and that sparked an idea. And I thought there was some kind of, some kind of movement, that it was like some, some physical transformation, right? Metamorphosis. As the cameras rolled, he found himself marking that metamorphosis into a killer with this haunting and macabre ballet. There is an intensity to all the characters you're yeah, playing. Yeah, which I love. I think oftentimes people feel like I identify and I'm expressing something of my own experience through the character. Um, I think it's the opposite. I think it's because oftentimes the characters um, have these lives and experiences that are so foreign to me um, that it, it breaks my heart. That may be one of the most surprising things about Joaquin Phoenix. He is not his characters. He's incredibly close to his family and seems most relaxed when he's with them. What was Joaquin like as a, as a child? Be very, be very careful. Be very careful with this mom. We all should answer this one at a time. Yeah. From my perspective, I was a terror. <laughs> you were a terror. Yeah, but I was hoping you guys were going to go like, that's not true. That is so oh, not true. I know. Thanks, guys. I know. He has three sisters, Rain, Liberty, and Summer. That's his stepdad, Jeffrey, and his mom, Hart. If those names didn't tip you off, the Phoenixes were a band of hippies. They had little money but deep convictions. Hart and their late father, John Lee Phoenix, homeschooled the kids, and in the 1970s, they moved around constantly. For two years, they lived in Venezuela with a cult called the Children of God. Yeah, they obviously don't uh, advertise themselves as a cult, or else no, nobody would join, <laughs> right, yeah. right? So it seemed like it was this uh, a community. You really did not have much of anything. Is that fair to say? We were ministers. We were just living on the road, and we shared our truth, and we would get donations. But by 1977, they say they'd grown disillusioned with the cult, 
and move back to the U.S., eventually settling in Los Angeles with no money and no real plan. The Phoenix kids started performing on the streets. That seven-year-old Joaquin on the right, next to him, his older brother, River Phoenix. Gonna make it, gonna make it, gonna make it. River was the first to get into acting and became a star in the hit film, Stand By Me. Joaquin was 10 when he landed his big break on an episode of Hill Street Blues. What do you remember about it? I remember that, um, are you guys going to play the scene on this thing and then I'm going to answer it? You know, television is a visual (laughs) medium. So, I mean... My memory is that I felt like my entire body was buzzing. There was a certain kind of power, that, right? I was in a room full of adults, and I felt that um, I had, like, um, affected them. Like, I, I, had, I had changed how they were feeling. Well, you punched one of them. Well, it wasn't real. It yeah. wasn't real, Anderson. Your daddy's very sick right now. Your daddy's not sick. Don't do that As a teenager, Joaquin became surprisingly picky about the roles he took and didn't act much. His brother, River Phoenix, had become a household name and at 18 was nominated for an Oscar. But in 1993, it all ended. River Phoenix died of a drug overdose outside this Hollywood club. Joaquin and Rain Phoenix were with him. He was just 23. The family has rarely spoken about his death publicly. We were so removed from kind of the entertainment world. We didn't watch entertainment shows. We didn't have the entertainment magazines in our house. Uh, You know, I mean, River was a really substantial actor and movie star, and we didn't really know it. And so during that time in which you're most vulnerable, there are helicopters flying over, there are people that are trying to sneak onto your land. Certainly, for me, it felt like it impeded on the mourning process, right? The grieving process happens out of nowhere. You know, I'll be driving and all of a sudden I will feel it and I'll just Even welcome it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no timeline for grief. There right? is Which... no timeline or no place where, you know, it just happens and I, and I welcome it. The family has found creative ways to honor River's life. His sister, Rain, a musician, just released an album dedicated to River. And the family runs a nonprofit organization named after him that works on social justice issues and conflict resolution. Joaquin says he's felt his brother's presence throughout his career, which has been wildly successful and often unconventional. A decade ago, Joaquin made a fake documentary about his own life called I'm Still Here. It was meant as a critique of fame. And as part of the film, he announced he was quitting acting to become a rapper. It was all an act, but hardly anyone knew. Phoenix kept up the facade in public for more than a year. You may remember this disastrous appearance with David Letterman. Uh, you're not going to act anymore? No. Why is that? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so you have given it some thought. There were rumors he was on drugs or having a breakdown. The film was a flop, but Phoenix says it made him a better actor, less afraid to make mistakes. I think what I didn't know is how much it would impact and influence my career as an actor. What what is the impact? 
There's something liberating about public humiliation. So to go through that sort of crucible is freeing in a way? Yeah, I mean, look, can't get much worse, right? (laughs) Far from it. Joker has brought in more than a billion dollars so far and is the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time. Success fueled in part by controversy. Some people thought the film glorified a killer. Others saw it as a case study of mental illness and society's failures to address it. I've described it as like a Rorschach test. It says something about the person viewing it and what they think that it's about. That's really rare for a film to kind of have that effect on people. Um, So in some ways, I welcomed it. Phoenix is already working on another film. When we last saw him, it was one of his few moments of downtime. And he was more than ready to see us leave. So when you're not working, what do you what do you do? I mean, do you like having time off? I do. Uh-uh. Yeah, I love it. I feel very comfortable um, with time off. What do I do? I um, I think I do normal things. I like to cook. I, well, I really don't want to talk okay, about fine, what I do. Fine. I mean, just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I just feel like, uh, yes, I, go, okay. like I like to cook. And <laughs> I'm going to see movies in my girlfriend. And I just go like, but I mean, I, I you know, I think I have very um, basic, like, yeah, needs. Never mind. And I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. <laughs> That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with the 53rd season premiere of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder. 
why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.